Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we conclude our sermon series from the book of Matthew after 72 weeks of study spanning the better part of two years. Through the eyes of this tax collector turned apostle, we've experienced Christ's incarnation, his baptism, his call to those first few disciples. We've seen his ministry in Galilee, his sermon on the mount and his tribute to John the Baptist. We've been awed by his miracles, challenged by his teachings, sobered by his rebukes. In these last few weeks, we've been grieved by his suffering, crushed by his crucifixion, overjoyed by his resurrection from the dead. We have just walked through the life and times of Jesus the Nazarene from beginning to end. Is there anything left that has not yet been covered? Well, yes, I suppose there is still one issue outstanding. How are Christ's disciples to continue? What are Christ's disciples to do when his time on earth is done? Last week we talked about some simple realities. That after life comes death, after death comes burial, after burial comes resurrection, and in the case of Jesus, after resurrection comes ascension, where the incarnate Christ leaves here to sit at the right hand of God the Father. A time is coming when he will offer that final blessing and part from them being carried up into heaven. So where does that leave his people? How do we finish the work that Jesus began? Well, turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 28. And follow along as we read Christ's final instruction to his followers, beginning in verse 16. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May God bless the reading of his word. Matthew's mention of the eleven here recalls the one who is missing and reminds us of his tragic end. The fact that Judas is no longer in this number underscores what Jesus has been telling us about discipleship all along. That it's difficult 
that it's demanding. That only those who are truly his will see it through to the end. Well, despite their many ups and downs along the way, these 11 satisfied that requirement, proving their faith by way of perseverance. So Jesus summons them to one final teaching session in the town of Galilee. Not only is that the location Jesus mentioned when appearing to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary in verse 10, it's also a most fitting place for Christ to relay these instructions. For wasn't Galilee often referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles? As Jesus' ministry on earth draws to a close, this now is the mission. To carry the gospel across geographic borders, across socioeconomic barriers, across ethnic and political blockades, so those who were once far off might be brought near. This now is the mission. But who's going to do it? Jesus is hours away from his own departure. Who will take up the charge in his stead? Initially, it's these 11. Perhaps a few others who were gathered in that crowd. But what about when they're gone? And their disciples after them? It would seem to me, until the final culmination... This command is for all who follow Christ in earnest, including those of us in the church today. Oh, but what is that commission exactly? Is Jesus suggesting that every one of his people go to some remote region? Leave their home for another locale? Well, that's going to be part of the program for sure. That some in the church actually physically go with boots on the ground and Bibles in their hand. That's got to be part of the program. But I do not believe Jesus is requiring that of each and every single believer. We don't see congregations in the early church up and move wholesale in pursuit of that mission. I can't see how practically that would even work, nor am I convinced by what Jesus actually communicated to the disciples grammatically. Of the four verbal components we see here, three of them are spoken in the active voice. Do this, do this, and do this one. In the original language, that's known as the active voice. Three of the verbals appear in that form. The other, go, is in the passive voice. Not because it's unimportant, but because it's not the primary command. It doesn't have the same force behind it. It won't look the same for everyone who believes. That's why many scholars have opted for an alternate translation of that verb. Either as you are going, or, assuming that's already the case, having gone. That seems more in line with Jesus' actual intention. 
Not that 100% of believers would leave their current location for a distant land, but that 100% of believers would engage in missional activity wherever they live, wherever they move, wherever they have their being. And what exactly is that missional activity in which we must engage? Well, there's where the three active voice verbals come into the equation. They are the focal point of Christ's instruction to disciples of every age. First, Christ commissions us to make disciples. This command is stated just as clearly as can be at the beginning of verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now this is extremely important for the church to understand because it's often misunderstood, particularly in the realm of missions. And more often than not, we consider missions and evangelism as synonymous terms. As though making converts were the ultimate goal of proclaiming the gospel. Is that not how we typically think of it? Now let's go out and share the good news with kids in the community, families in our neighborhood, the unreached overseas. Let's go and share the good news so that more people will make a decision to come to Christ. Then we report those decisions to our shareholders and consider the task complete. That is the typical approach. Being replayed over and over and over again in just about every place that you can imagine. But that is not what Christ commands. In this text or any other. No, what is our ultimate goal when proclaiming the gospel? What is our overarching responsibility to those who do not yet know? It's not just to evangelize. It's not merely to convert, but to disciple. That's how the verb appears in the Greek manuscript, as just one single word, mathetuo, which means literally, to instruct a pupil to a place of spiritual maturity where they are equipped to follow the whole of Christ's instruction. To instruct a pupil to a place of spiritual maturity where they are equipped to follow the whole of Christ's instruction. You say, well, that's going to take a long time. Yeah, it is. That's well, going to require quite an investment. Yeah, it will. But that is the work to which we have been commissioned. Otherwise, we're restricting the kids, the families, the unreached to a life of spiritual infancy. We can't just speak Jesus one time to these people. And then leave them on their own. 
That's not discipleship. That's neglect. I mean, that would be the charge if we've left one of our flesh and blood infants to fend for themselves. We've been blessed to have several of them in the congregation. Hey, Kai, Laura, we birthed you. You've got to take it from here. The absurdity of that is matched only by the absurdity of this. The notion running rampant throughout Christendom that we should focus on conversion and not discipleship. That is not the charge. Now, as R.C. Sproul put it, the Great Commission calls us to do more than work to convert people. It calls us to teach them, ground them, to help them grow in conformity to the will of Christ. That is our mission and nothing less. Because the newborn can't just figure it out on their own. They need an example to follow. They need instructions to heed. They need time to develop and mature. It's a much longer process and a much harder work. But isn't that what Christ has been modeling for these very disciples? I mean, for 20 plus chapters over the course of three years, Christ has taught and demonstrated. He's asked and answered. He's challenged and rebuked. It takes that kind of investment, friends. And alone, yeah, it's too big a task. But that is why the Lord put us in community and assigned us these various gifts. As Paul told the church in Ephesus, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. We know that can't happen without the Holy Spirit at work, but that growth, that Maturity, that stature, that's what we're after, friends. For ourselves, yeah, but also for every person that we come across. Here, there, and around the world. Yeah. There is no doubt Christ commissions us to make disciples but not only that, he also tells us to baptize believers. Take a look at verse 19 again. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, our understanding of baptism and its significance comes primarily from Paul's letter to the Romans. It is the prevailing passage on the subject in the New Testament, one I have read publicly at every baptism over which I have had the privilege to preside. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so they would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In order to be crucified with Christ, in order to put that old man out of his misery, in order to be free from sin's reign of tyranny in my life, I must identify personally with Jesus. A union set forth quite specifically in the observance of baptism. Do we not see in these verses the picture of baptismal immersion, the plunge beneath the waters like a death, that moment beneath the surface like a burial, the emergence from the water, a resurrection of sorts. Of course, we realize that this outward sign must first be a reality within, but assuming that is the case, this is the prescribed way to identify with the Lord Jesus and announce our newfound freedom from sin. And isn't that what we want for our unredeemed neighbors? Isn't that what we want for our unreached friends? That because the gospel has been rightly proclaimed to them, because they have been properly discipled by those in the church, that their former self would be dead and buried, giving way to something new. A new union, a new identity, a new lease on life. I mean, how amazing is this truth? That the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead has likewise imparted new life to those found in him. Just as though you and I 
walked out of that tomb ourselves. Huh? Any number of times we find this affirmed in Scripture. That even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. That having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. We have the incredible privilege and responsibility to share that reality with the dead in sin people around us. And after sharing, after modeling, after discipling, to participate in their observance of baptism. Where people who are destined to stumble around forever in the dark step into that water to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Yeah? Christ commissions us to make disciples, baptize believers, and... Teach obedience. Take a look now at verse 20. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now obviously, Jesus could have told his disciples to teach anything that he desired. Teach them the history of the church. Teach them the timeline of the passion. Teach them the definition of grace. Now we're not to exclude these lessons as we go forth from here, but they are not the issue of utmost importance. At least not where Christ is concerned. No, at the very top of his list is the heathen's observance of or obedience to Christ's commands. Is that what typifies the teaching of the church today? Not in the slightest especially not where the unbeliever is concerned. Oh, if they're here, we shouldn't even mention the word obedience. But obedience is the only evidence we have that the unbeliever has in fact been brought near. Only if they exhibit the obedience of faith. Scholars have generally come to understand this concept in one of two different ways. It either describes obedience that is born out of faith or obedience that is faith. And we could spend a great deal of time talking about the distinction, but I'm not sure there really is one. Because in the Christian experience, faith and obedience are inseparably linked. In fact, the reason Christ appointed apostles, the goal behind this entire commissioning, 
is to see the nations respond with faith so genuine that obedience to Christ becomes the order of the day. That's what Paul understood as his purpose in going, discipling, baptizing, and teaching. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a, a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. As we reach out with the gospel message and take on this work, we don't want a mere acknowledgement of Jesus amongst the heathens. We're not looking for a hasty conversion or a half-hearted confession. None of that actually furthers the cause of Christ. Now, we want to see real repentance and genuine faith, the kind that changes the way people live. Yeah, but after a lifetime spent tripping over sin, how will they know the right way to walk? Somebody's got to go and teach them. Now, if Jesus were here incarnate, I'm sure that he would do it. If Paul or Peter, James or John, I have no doubt they would answer that call. But they're not here in person. So, without being overly dramatic, I suppose this comes down to me and you. Somebody's got to teach them to obey the commands of Christ. Because as several of the gospel writers make clear, blessings do not come to those who just hear the word only. But those who hear the word of God and obey. Do you see? Christ's commissioning is pretty clear. To make disciples, baptize believers, and teach obedience. But among which People. To what extent? Like those first century apostles, Jesus commands us to disciple, baptize, and teach all of the nations. Isn't that what he's talking about throughout the entirety of this morning's text? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. In its final statement, Matthew's gospel has returned to the theme that he introduced in the very first verse. 
where he identified Jesus as the son of Abraham. As we know, Matthew had a decidedly Jewish audience in mind when putting pen to paper in 60 or so A.D. And the pivotal connection for their people was between Yeshua and the father of Israel. Matthew set out to show them that Jesus was a Hebrew of Hebrews who could not only trace his lineage back to Abraham himself, but fulfilled the promises that God made to Abraham way back at the outset. Perhaps most famously, the Lord said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, uh, before his name has been changed, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you or through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. People reading Matthew's gospel have been awaiting that blessing for generations. But when would that blessing come? How long would it last and who exactly would bring it? Well, God revealed those things a bit later in Abraham's life. Telling him in Genesis chapter 22 verse 18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. As Matthew has gone to great lengths to prove Jesus is that Abrahamic seed. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection made a way for the nations to enter in. But how would that eternity-changing message be broadcast to all the peoples of the world? We know that during Jesus' ministry on earth, he spent nearly his entire lifetime within a hundred miles of the place where he was born. Except for a period of time when he was taken down to Egypt as an infant to escape the wrath of Herod. And just a couple of days when he crossed over the northern border of Israel, he never left the confines of his own country. And even there, his ministry was focused almost exclusively on the Jews. How then will his work impact? Panta ta ethne, all of the nations. Well, that task he left for the church. As soon as Christ ascended, this became our job. It became our responsibility. And we need to recognize it as such. Now, that is a challenge in the church today. Because... Believers are as self-centered and self-absorbed as ever they have been. And we don't want to admit that, but generally speaking, it is true. Even as we claim to follow Jesus, we are concerned about ourselves first and foremost. So how do we move from self-concern to a concern for the ethnos? 
How do we make that all-important, Christ-mandated shift? By realizing that the investment the Lord has made in you, be it salvation, be it blessings, be it some call upon your life, the investment the Lord has made in you is not just for or about you. The only way we can adopt the right missional mindset is to understand that foundational reality that is demonstrated all throughout the scriptures. When Solomon had finished praying in 1 Kings chapter 8, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. He stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine which with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may maintain the cause of his servant and cause of his people Israel as each day requires so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. God, be gracious to us and bless us, the psalmist implores in Psalm 67. Cause his face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation known among all nations. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I don't know, friends, if you have ever stopped and asked yourself the question, why? But it's an important one. Why am I saved? Why am I blessed beyond measure? Why have I been given a hundred copies of the Bible on my shelf when other people have none? Why have I become so abundant in resource? Why have I become particularly gifted in some aspect of ministry? Preaching and teaching, giving and serving, praying and exhortation. Why? It's not just for your benefit or the benefit of this local assembly. It's so together we can see this come to fruition. That all the nations would glorify the one true and living God. That is a big task. I know it. It's a tall order. Yeah, but it's also a scriptural command. So difficult as it may be, you and I better figure out a way 
to get on with it. Huh? How are we going to take this on? I mean, the thought of itself is so overwhelming. What would give the apostles in the first century? Uh, what would give any of us today the confidence to undertake such an effort? Make disciples, baptize believers, teach obedience to all the nations? That's a monumental effort. What gives us any confidence at all that this could even be accomplished? Well, we need look no further than the two bookend statements of Christ for all the assurance that we need. The first found at the end of verse 18, the second at the end of verse 20. First, Jesus emboldens them by saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And not only does this speak to the power that the Father delegated to Christ, which is almighty, all-sufficient, and all-encompassing. It also speaks to the power delegated by Christ to his disciples. It too is almighty, all-sufficient, and all-encompassing. And it's the only way that this mission is possible. Because without that, well, these fishermen and tax collectors they don't have what it takes any more than we do. Oh, but thankfully, and praise God, glory, glory, and hallelujah, he sends us out with his power and his presence. That's the second of these two assurances where Jesus says, Lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. Now, of course, Jesus makes that statement only a few hours before he up and leaves them to sit alongside God the Father. So, this is a nice sentiment, Lord, but in what way does it actually ring true? Christ incarnate is no longer on the earth, friends. And yet, he is with his followers always. Or as that expression, pasas teis hemeres, would be rendered literally, he is with us the whole of every day. How do believers experience that ongoing presence of Christ? Through the indwelling of his spirit, who makes Jesus' presence all the more personal, all the more powerful, all the more Real. That's the promise that Jesus made to the disciples. Though he would one day leave them, he would send another just like him to take up residence within. I will ask the Father, Jesus says in John chapter 14, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will 
come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. This is the most incredible promise ever pronounced. Not only that he would send his spirit to indwell, but that wherever we go to fulfill this mission, whatever borders we might cross among how many other people, his spirit will be with us all the way to encourage, to equip, and to empower. So ends the Gospel of Matthew, a book clearly depicting who Jesus is, how his kingdom comes, what his message contains, and with whom we must share it. So let us make disciples. Let us baptize believers. Let us teach obedience to all the nations in the power and presence of the living Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this call. Lord, it is a huge, huge undertaking. But we have been assured by the voice of your Son, we have been assured that we don't go it alone. Lord, that you will be with us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, and we we trust in that promise and we rely on that truth. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts that you would move us from a place of self-concern to a concern for the nations just as you demonstrated we too would reflect that your concern is for those of every tribe and every tongue and every ethnicity Lord because you are God of the universe. And you want all to be well represented. Help us to do our part in obedience to your command for the good of the nations and for your glory as well. Continue to be exalted in our midst and our lives, we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 